Dennis Nilsson, also known as the Kindly Murderer and the Muswell Hill Murderer, was a British serial killer and necrophile who murdered at least 12 young men and boys in London between 1978 and 1983. He was a quiet, introverted child who retreated from his family frequently when he was younger. However, he would later come to terms with the fact that he was a homosexual and would remain closeted for most of his life. But in the 1970s, he was overwhelmed by the need to be in a long-term relationship. In today's episode, we'll be discussing a serial killer in the name of Dennis Andrew Nilsson. Hi, I'm your host, Benjamin Bryan, and you're listening to Peaced. In 1978, he murdered a 14-year-old boy in London after inviting him to his place to drink alcohol. Until he was apprehended, he picked up several of his victims in the same fashion. Dennis was brought to trial at the Old Bailey on October 24th, 1983, and was sentenced to life in prison on November 4th, 1983. All of Dennis's killings took place between 1978 and 1983 at his two North London homes. His victims would be deceived into going to these addresses and being strangled to death, sometimes accompanied by drowning. Following each murder, Dennis would hold a ritual in which he washed and dressed the victim's body, which he held onto for lengthy periods, before disposing of the remains by disemboweling the body, by burning them in a bonfire, or flushing them down the toilet. Dennis was a man who hated animal cruelty, but still murdered human beings. He simply worshipped the art of death over and over again, and hated the decay and dissection that came afterwards. He also added that he didn't take any sadistic pleasure in the killing and simply killed them as he wished to be killed. So Dennis was born on the 23rd of November 1945 in Fraserburgh, Aberdeenshire, Scotland. He was the second of three children born to Elizabeth White. His father, on the other hand, Olav Mokshim, was a Norwegian soldier who had travelled to Scotland in 1940. However, after a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May 1942 and the newlyweds moved into her parents' house. Dennis's parents had a troubled relationship. His father, Olav, was more concerned with his work and made little effort to spend time with his new family. He also didn't make any plans to find a new house for his wife, causing her to conclude that he was not ready for a married life. After the birth of her third child, Dennis's mother, Elizabeth, decided that she had rushed into the marriage without thinking. So in 1948, after six years of marriage, the couple divorced. Andrew and Lily White, who had never approved of their daughter's marriage choice anyway, were supportive of her decision. Dennis's earliest childhood memories include family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings, his grandparents' noble lifestyle, which he later described as cold and dreary, and being carried on the shoulders with his maternal grandfather, Andrew White, whom he adored. He and his grandfather would go for walks, sometimes accompanied by his siblings. Even though Dennis was only five years old at the time, he recalled vividly that the treks were extremely long, as his grandfather would take him around the harbour and onto Inverlochy, which is a village about four miles east of Fraserburgh in northeast Scotland. 
In his later years, he would describe his childhood as a state of happiness and satisfaction, with his grandfather being his great hero and protector. He added that whenever his grandfather, who was a fisherman, was at sea, that life would be empty for him until he returned. Until 1951, when his grandfather's health began to deteriorate, Dennis continued to enjoy the simplicity of being a kid. His grandfather died of a heart attack while fishing in the North Sea on October 31st, 1951, at the age of 62. Before the burial could be held, his body was returned to the White's family home. Seeing his grandfather lying in an open casket was one of Dennis's most vivid childhood memories. His mother consoled him by telling him that his grandfather was sleeping, adding that he had gone to a better place. Dennis said that his hero's unexpected death, as well as a traumatic experience of seeing his body during his wake, led to his later behavioural psychopathology. Following his grandfather's death, Dennis grew increasingly reclusive, wanting to avoid the company of other people, spending most of his time alone at the harbour watching the boats. He rarely took part in family events and avoided any of his family members and would only speak to or play with Sylvia, his youngest sister. In 1954, one of his solitary excursions to the beach in Inverlochy, Dennis fell beneath the waves and nearly drowned. He panicked at first, waving his arms and shouting and gasping for air, before he remembered that his hero had experienced the same and would come to his rescue. He felt calm until he was hauled out by another young man who saved his life. While Dennis was still shocked from the aftermath of his accident, his mother moved out of her parents' house with her three kids. She then married Andrew Scott, who was a builder, and they had four additional children together. Dennis initially despised his stepfather, whom he saw as a harsh disciplinarian, but later came to respect him. In 1955, the family relocated to Stricken, around eight miles north-northeast of Fraserborough. At the onset of puberty, Dennis discovered he was a homosexual, which was confusing for him, but he kept his sexuality a secret from his family and his few friends. He once sexually fondled Sylvia, hoping that his desire for the same sex was a twisted reflection of his love for her, but discovered it wasn't. During that period, Dennis did not attempt to initiate sexual contact with any of his peers whom he found sexually attractive. While confronting the truths of his sexuality, he also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. Consequently, Olav Jr. began to publicly bully his brother. As Dennis grew older, he found life in Stricken, Stryken to be increasingly suffocating. He finished his education in 1961 and worked at a canning factory for three weeks as he considered which career path he would choose. He enlisted in the Army Cadet Force at the age of 14, seeing the British Army as a means to escape his rural origins. He began his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omer Barracks in Eldershot, Hampshire, in September 1961. Dennis excelled in his army responsibilities within weeks, subsequently describing his three years of training at Aldershot as the best years of his life. He cherished the chances for travel he was given throughout his training. Dennis's desires for sexual relations awkward despite keeping his sexual orientation a secret. For fear of disclosing his secret, Dennis never bathed with his fellow soldiers. Instead, he would bathe alone in the restroom. Dennis was formally posted to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in West Germany in mid-1964 after passing his initial catering exam. 
During this deployment, Dennis began to increase his intake of alcohol. Dennis and a German adolescent once drank themselves to unconsciousness. When Dennis awakened, he was on the floor of the German's teenager's apartment. Even though no sexual activity had happened, Dennis's sexual fantasies were fueled by this occurrence, which originally featured his sexual partner, always a young, slender male, being entirely passive. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. This is the beginning of what could be described as Dennis's twisted fantasies. After two years of service in West Germany, Dennis returned to Aldershot, where he passed his official catering exam, before being assigned to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway. In 1967, he was deployed to the state of Aden, where he again served as a cook at the Al Mansour prison. This posting was more dangerous than his previous postings, but a silver lining was that he now had his room which gave him the freedom to develop his fantasies. He soon began to feel unsatisfied with just imagining it, but he compensated by masturbating while looking at his own nude body in a mirror. Dennis observed that by arranging a standing mirror, his head was hidden so he could picture himself engaging in a sexual act with another man. This was perfect for Dennis. His fantasies soon expanded to include his own near-death experiences. The dead bodies he had seen during his deployment and imagery from the Wrath of the Medusa, which is a 19th century oil painting, depicting an old man holding the limp, nude body of a dead youth as he sits beside the dismembered body of another young male. Dennis's most recalled fantasy was of a slim, handsome young soldier who had recently been slain in combat, being held by a faceless, filthy grey-haired old guy who cleaned the body before indulging in intercourse with the naked spread eagle corpse. Dennis returned to the UK after his service in Aden and was posted to the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders at Seaton Barracks in Plymouth. Devon. Dennis stayed at these barracks for a year before being deployed to Cyprus in 1969 with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. The unit was relocated to West Berlin a few months later, where Dennis had his first sexual experience with a female, a prostitute whose services he solicited. He made sure to brag about the experience to all of his comrades. After a brief stint with the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders in Inverness, Dennis was chosen to cook for the Queen's Royal Guard before being moved to a different regiment in Shetland Islands in January 1971, where he concluded his 11-year military service as a corporal in October 1972. Dennis stayed with his family from October through December 1972 as he thought about his next steps. After a fight with his older brother, Olav Jr., over gay rights, he was outed to his family. In December, he decided to join the Metropolitan Police Service and moved to London to begin his training. Dennis completed his training in April 1973 and was posted to Wilsdon Green. He made many arrests while still a cadet and a junior constable, but he never had to physically subdue a member of the public. Dennis enjoyed the work, but he missed the army's camaraderie. He began to visit gay bars in the summer and in autumn of 1973, and he had many casual affairs with men. Dennis viewed his casual relations as empty as he sought a long-term commitment. Despite the clear advantages that police work gave to developing his fantasies, he resigned after concluding that his job was at odds with his lifestyle. Between December 1973 and May 1974, Dennis worked as a security guard before moving on to become a civil servant later in May 1974. His primary job was to find employment 
for unskilled labourers. In 1979, Dennis was appointed executive officer with supervisory responsibilities before transferring to another branch in June 1982. However, just to mention, in 1973, Dennis had his first official confrontation with the police. A young man named David Painter, whom Dennis met while at work, alleged that Dennis took intimate photos of him while he was sleeping. David's charges were heard and Dennis was summoned for questioning, but he was later released without prosecution because David had no evidence to back up his claim. While settling into his new job as a civil servant, Dennis's wish came true when he encountered a 20-year-old man called David being harassed by two other men outside a gay bar. Nilsson intervened and took David to his room at 80 Tainmouth Road in the Cricklewood district in North London. The two men spent the evening getting to know each other, which was how Dennis found that David was new to London, having recently relocated from Western Supermare, Somerset, and that he was gay, unemployed, and broke. After a night of drinking and talking, the duo decided to live together in a bigger residence. Immediately, using the money he had received from his birth father, who died earlier that month, Dennis began searching for suitable places for him and David to stay. Several days later, the two viewed and agreed on a vacant ground floor, 195 Melrose Avenue, also in Cricklewood. Dennis had also negotiated a deal with the landlord, which gave him and David exclusive rights to use the garden at the rear of the property. The flat was meant to be fully furnished, but upon moving in, the two men discovered that it was mostly empty. Over the next couple of months, the two had settled into a routine where Dennis saw himself as the breadwinner of the two due to David's lack of employment ambitions and left the decorating and furnishing and the day-to-day -day chores to David. Although Dennis found himself sexually attracted to David, the pair rarely had sex. At first, they were both content with their relationship until a year in the strains started to show. They began leading different lives, despite living together. They slept in separate rooms and often brought home different sexual partners. David insisted that Dennis had been verbally abusive to him and the pair continued to fight and argue. After a heated argument in May 1977, the pair separated. They both had different accounts of what had happened that afternoon. Dennis stated that he demanded David to leave his residence while after denying any romantic or sexual relations with Dennis. David informed the investigator that he chose to end their relationship. After David left, Dennis's life began a downward spiral into alcohol and loneliness, which he tried to curb with three different relations within the time span of eight months, which all failed as the men had no desire to live with Dennis permanently. By late 1978, Dennis was living a single life and admitted to having developed a conviction that he was unfit to live with. He became increasingly disturbed by the sexual relations, which only seemed to reinforce his loneliness when they were over. He then began devoting all his time and effort to his work before drinking himself into near unconsciousness each night. Dennis continued this lifestyle until the 30th of December 1978, which was when he met his first victim, who was later identified as a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Holmes. Dennis encountered the teenager at a pub in Cricklewood, where Holmes had failed to purchase alcohol. According to Dennis, he had been drinking heavily all day. Dennis invited Holmes to his house, with the promise of booze and music, believing that Holmes was around 17 years old. So both of them drank until they passed out in his house and Dennis woke up the next morning, December 31st, 1978, 
to see the sleeping boy in his bed beside him. Suddenly overcome by a desire to prevent the young man from leaving, he strangled him with a tie before drowning him in a bucket of water. Dennis washed the body in his bathtub before placing Holmes back into the bed. He masturbated twice over the body that morning, performing his little ritual. He later stored the body away beneath the floorboard. I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there. And that was from a short extract. From Dennis's written recollections of the ritual, he observed after he murdered his first victim. Holmes's body remained buried for eight months under the floorboard with him digging the body out frequently in the first few weeks. Dennis built bonfires in the garden behind his flat where he burned the body on the 11th of August, 1979. By October 1979, Dennis was ready to capture his next victim. He attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, whom he had met in a St. Martin's Lane pub and lured to his flat with the promise of sex. He attempted to strangle Ho, who was able to flee and report the assault to the police. And Dennis was once again called in for questioning but as Andrew decided not to press charges, the police had no grounds to detain him and he was released. Two months after the incident with Andrew Ho, Nilsson succeeded in murdering his next victim. On the 3rd of December, 1979, Dennis met a 23-year-old Canadian student who was touring England, visiting relatives. They met at a bar and upon learning, Kenneth was a tourist. Dennis offered to show him around London, an offer Kenneth accepted without any suspicion. Following a day of sightseeing and drinking, which was to end at Dennis's apartment, the two made a stop on their way back to Dennis's place and purchased some alcohol for the night, to which Kenneth insisted they split the bill. After arriving at his home, Dennis once again failed to resist his fears of abandonment and strangled Kenneth to death with the cord of his headphones. He dragged the youth across his floor before pouring himself a glass of rum and continuing to listen to music on the headphones which Kenneth had been strangled with. He washed the corpse as he did with Stephen Holmes, performing his little ritual before sharing the bed with him overnight. The following morning, he got himself a Polaroid camera and photographed Kenneth in several positions. He laid with Kenneth's corpse as he watched television for several hours, having a conversation with the body as though he was a living person, before wrapping the body in plastic bags and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On several occasions, Dennis would find himself digging the body out, washing it, and engaging in conversations with the body as if Kenneth was still alive. His third victim, which was around five months later, was Martin Duffy, who was a catering student from Birkenhead, Merseyside, who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge. Without anywhere to stay the night after being caught and questioned by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare, Dennis invited Duffy to his home on the night of May 17th, 1980. The homeless 16-year-old was both exhausted and hungry and happily accepted Dennis's offer of a meal and a bed for the evening. After Duffy passed out on the bed after a warm meal, Dennis strangled then drowned him, just like he did previously with his other victims. He then bathed with the body, later describing Duffy as being the youngest looking boy he had ever seen. He said that he had repeatedly kissed and caressed the body before and after he had masturbated while firmly seated on the corpse. 
Duffy was first sorted away in the cupboard, but soon joined Kenneth, the second victim, under the floorboard. After his third murder, Dennis increased the speed at which he killed. By the end of 1980, he had murdered an additional five victims, with one managing to escape. Out of those five victims, only two were ever identified, one named Billy Sutherland, aged 27, had the misfortune of following Dennis home one night. He too was strangled. Another one of his victims, a 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow, was an orphan with learning disabilities who was also strangled. In the late 1980s, Dennis removed and dissected the bodies of each victim killed since 1979. Before dissecting them, he dismembered them, removing their internal organs which he disposed of either beside a fence behind his flat or close to Gladstone Park, with their flesh and smaller bones flushed down the toilet, before burning the dismembered body parts using a bonfire, just like the one he had built to burn his first victim, Stephen Holmes. A month before 4th of January 1981, Nilsson had resumed his manhunt and murdered two other victims, who remained unidentified till now. By April, Dennis had killed two more who were unidentified victims. After his arrest, while making his confessions, he casually stated, end of the day, end of the drink, end of a person, floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was a 23-year-old named Malcolm Barlow, who Dennis discovered leaning against a wall outside his home on the 17th of September 1981. Dennis had inquired about his health before suggesting that Barlow go to the hospital. Barlow was released from the hospital the next day and returned to Dennis's house to express his gratitude. He and Nilsson began drinking rum and coke before Barlow eventually ended up falling asleep on the sofa. Dennis watched him lay on the sofa before strangling him as he slept. By the time Barlow was killed, Dennis was forced to stuff him under the kitchen sink as he was rapidly running out of storage space, with half a dozen bodies hidden around the apartment. By 1981, Dennis had killed a total of 12 men in his home. Inevitably, the accumulated bodies beneath Dennis's floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odour, particularly throughout the summer months. Given his affection for preying on the homeless and the unemployment in a large city, in mid 1981, per the request of his landlord, Dennis reluctantly had to move from 195 Melrose Avenue. The day before he vacated the property to get rid of the corpses, he had stowed away, he dismembered them on the kitchen floor with a large knife, before burning the dissected bodies with a final bonfire he had constructed in the garden behind his flat. On the 5th of October 1981, Dennis moved into an attic flat at 23 Cranley Gardens in North London, and as he did not have access to a garden and also couldn't store the bodies in a floorboard, he tried to restrain his homicidal behaviour. For almost five months, Dennis was able to hold back his psychopathological tendencies. Still unable to put an end to his impulses, in March 1982, Dennis encountered a 23-year-old named John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Leicester Square. He was led to his home with the promise of alcohol, and after an hour of contemplating whether or not to kill Howlett, Dennis decided to do it. Dennis strangled Howlett into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room, shaking from the stress of the struggle before drowning him in his bathtub. A further two victims were killed in this apartment between his arrival on the 5th of October 1981 to February 1983. These victims were identified as Archibald Graham Allen and Stephen Sinclair and presented Dennis with much greater disposal challenges, given the apartment's lack of direct access to outdoor space. 
In August 1982, he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen. And just like his other victims, Allen was invited home for a meal. However, later on, Allen's body was retained in the bathtub for a total of three days. On the 26th of January, 1983, Dennis killed his final victim, a 20-year-old who was named Stephen Sinclair. He was also strangled with a necktie and rope. He followed his usual ritual of bathing the body before masturbating and spending the night with the corpse by its side after kissing him goodnight. Dennis later overcame his disposal obstacles by boiling the heads, feet and hands, and like previously, dissecting the bodies into small pieces that could be flushed down the toilet and disposed of in plastic bags. His skills as a cook and a butcher from his time in the military served him well as he disposed of the bodies. Dennis disposed of the flesh, internal organs and smaller bones of the three victims he had killed at his Cranley Gardens apartment by flushing them down the toilet, which would later lead to his capture. On February 4th, 1983, Dennis and five other tenants at Cranley Gardens complained that their drains were blocked and decided to call a drain specialist, Dino Rod, to investigate, which would later lead to the discovery of the body parts Dennis flushed down the drain. Dino Rod employee, Michael Catran, was assigned to respond to the plumbing complaints made by the residents. On February 8th, 1983, in the presence of the tenants, including Dennis, he discovered rotten human remains when he opened the outdoor manhole. And after reporting his suspicion to his superior, it was decided that a full inspection would be conducted the next day. After depending on what they find, the police would be called to investigate. Witnessing Michael Catran dig out the body parts that were flushed down the drain made Dennis increasingly aware of the prospect of his capture. He tried to clear out the human tissue found in the outdoor drain, but he had no means of clearing the scraps from the pipe leading up to the top flap. The next morning, Michael Catran and his superior returned to the drain for further investigations, only to find that the drain was cleared, which was very suspicious to them. Upon further investigations, they found scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain which linked to the top flap. The bones looked a lot like human bones to the two men, who immediately called the police. The police then discovered small bones and scraps of what looked either human or animal flesh in the same pipe. The remains were taken to a pathologist, David Bowen, who confirmed to them that it was human remains. His conclusive piece of evidence was that one particular piece of flesh he concluded had been from a human neck that had a strangulation mark. Dennis made no attempts to escape, despite being aware that his chances of capture were high. He was even said to have joked with his colleague saying, if I'm not in tomorrow, I'll either be ill, dead, or in jail. Dennis, upon his return from work the next day, met with Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay and two of his colleagues waiting for him in front of his house. They introduced themselves as police officers and accompanied him into his flat. They immediately noticed an unpleasant smell of rotting flesh. They asked Dennis about the other body parts, which he calmly confessed were stored in plastic bags all around the apartment. The officers did not open the source of the stench, but they did ask Dennis if there were other body parts to be found. To which he replied, it's a long story, it goes back a long time, I'll tell you everything, I want to get it off my chest. Not here, at the police station. To which Dennis was escorted to the police station after being read his rights. While being detained, he quickly revealed information about his murdering spree, admitting to killing 15 to 16 young men. He also admitted to the attempted murder of seven others and could only name four of them. Despite getting a formal caution, he seemed eager to talk. At 5.40pm on the 11th of February, Dennis was officially charged with Sinclair's murder. 
At no point did he show remorse and even helped the police collect evidence against him. Dennis was adamant he was uncertain as to why he killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you will tell me that, when he asked his motive for the murders. He was adamant the decision to kill was not made until moments before the murder. After his confessions, he was transferred to HMP Brixton to be held until his trial. Whilst there, he wrote over 50 notebooks of his memories to assist the prosecution. His trial commenced on October 24th, 1983. Dennis was charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. He pleaded not guilty to all charges, citing less responsibility due to a mental defect. The primary dispute between the prosecuting and defense counsel was not whether Dennis had killed the victims, but his state of mind before and during the killings, to which the prosecution called upon a psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Bowden who had spent a considerable amount of time with Dennis. He stated that Dennis was manipulative, with some signs of mental abnormality, but still aware of and responsible for his actions. The prosecution largely relied on detailed interview notes that followed from his detention, which took over four hours to present to the jury, as well as the evidence of the three victims, Paul Nobbs, Douglas Stewart, and Carl Stotter, all of whom he attempted to strangle photographs of the crime scenes as well as the chopping block used to dissect the victims and the cooking pots used to boil the heads, feet and hands were all introduced as physical evidence, which is now displayed at the Black Museum in Scotland Yard. Following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defence, the jury retired to consider their verdict on the 3rd of November 1983. However, the following day, the judge agreed to accept a majority verdict, and at 4.25pm, they delivered a verdict of guilty on all six counts of murder. The judge, Croom Johnson, sentenced Dennis Andrew Nilsson to life in prison without eligibility for parole for at least 25 years. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which Dennis was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life tariff by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December 1994. This ruling ensured Dennis would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. Dennis Nilsson died at the age of 72 on May 12, 2018. After 34 years in prison, he was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. A subsequent post-mortem examination revealed that the immediate cause of Nilsson's death was a pulmonary embolism and a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. Dennis Andrew Nilsson had a difficult childhood. He had an absent father, which caused his mother to later divorce her husband. He never quite recovered from the death of his grandfather, who had an extremely good relationship with. In his young years, he discovered his sexual orientation and then began to find the rural area he and his family lived in to be suffocating. He was shy but above average at academics. He thrived in the army and missed the sense of camaraderie he had built in the army after finishing his 11 years of service. After several failed relationships and severely spiraling mental health, Dennis committed his first murder and continued on a killing spree for five years before being arrested and convicted on six charges to life imprisonment. In the years following his imprisonment, Dennis composed an unpublished 400-page autobiography entitled The History of a Drowning Boy. Concerning his murders, Dennis claimed that his emotional state upon the dates of his murders, in conjunction with the amount of alcohol he had consumed, were both core factors in his decision to kill. 
That's all for episode three about Dennis Andrew Nielsen. Please make sure to leave a review or share it with someone you know who may be interested in true crime, mysteries, and much more. Be sure to follow our social media, which is PiecedPod, P-I-E-C-E-D-P-O-D. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until then, take care, and I'll see you next month for another episode of Peaced. Thank you.